Thanks for those of you who were praying for me this week. I was in the hospital most of the week, and, uh, but it's good to be out. Had some kind of weird, <clears throat> still have it really, an infection in my leg. So kind of covered my whole leg, but it's shrinking now. And, and uh, so I guess, it's, uh, I guess it'll be fine here. Coming along, I'm trying to be patient. <clears throat> so going's kind of slow and it's kind of painful. But um, I, I don't want your home cures. I know you've all had the same thing. <laughs> Just leave me alone, okay? <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. As we're continuing our study through the book of 1 John, um, coming down toward the, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be finishing the book of First John. On Wednesday nights, we'll be picking up the books that we have left, Philemon, Second, Third John, and Jude, all three little short one-chapter books. And, and uh, then by the end of the year, that will leave us with only the book of Revelation in our quest to go through the whole Bible. And so we'll start Revelation up in January on Sunday mornings and Go through that book, and we will finish the whole Bible. First John is one of my favorite books, for sure. And every time I study it and go through it, I love it that much more. There's just so much depth here, and, and it, it's so important. Um, but here in chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, where we will pick up, um, John is wrapping up his whole presentation everything that he's been talking about. And it's, it's John's heart that we would know God's love and that God's love would, would have a personal effect on us, that our lives would be changed as a result of be, being touched by his grace. And here he takes the standpoint in these several of these verses, starting with verse 6, he takes the approach of, of evidence and witnesses and he uses the word witness um, quite a few. Altogether, forms of the word that's translated as witness are used 10 times in just these next six verses or so. Um, as you look through the verses, bear witness, a witness, and then the word he testified in verse 9, and testimony in verses 10 and 11. They're all the same basic word, either martyreo, which is the verb form, or martyria, which is the um, noun form. Uh, they all come from the basic word martos, which means witness. It was used as a word of testimony in the uh, court system, but obviously you know the word martyr that came from this came to mean someone who gave their life for the faith. The reason it came that is, is because people who would just tell the truth about what they've seen and what's happened in their lives because of Jesus, the um, government would tend to kill them. And so the word witness became the word martyr as a result of it. But he uses this word a bunch of times here, and, and it seems the idea is he's trying to lay out a case finally, for here's why you should be a Christian. And I think that there's no better question for us to face than that same question. Why should I believe in Jesus? 
Because we're all designed with a desire and, and maybe a need to believe in something. And there are a lot of choices out there. And if you're going to find your belief system in some religious approach, you have lots of choices. Um, you have, um, you know, you, you, certainly Christianity is a pr predominant choice in the West, but you have religions like Buddhism, uh, that's more of an Eastern religion, and Hinduism and Shintoism. You have Taoism, you have uh, Islam, in uh, primarily Middle East, but now spreading throughout the world. Um, all sorts of choices. And then there are all kinds of people who kind of make up their own religion as well. And for most people, they kind of think it's just an arbitrary choice. You look at the choices and you just pick one. And that makes perfectly good sense to a lot of people, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because to me, what you choose to believe in that dictates your entire life is something that you should take more seriously than the same way that you would pick out a shirt off the rack. It shouldn't just be about preference. Or worse yet, as many people would say, people just become a particular religion because they were born into it. And there may be some truth to that, but do you really want to base your eternity on just the fact that your parents were into this? And maybe you're into it even more than they are, but is that what brought you to the point where you decided that, well, I guess I'm going to be a Christian? Was it simply a matter of personal choice? Uh, ultimately, it always becomes a matter of personal choice. You choose what you believe. But what the Bible makes very clear, and is on John's heart here in these verses, is that there is evidence. There are witnesses. There are those that will attest to the special and unique nature of faith in Jesus Christ and in what the Bible presents as the gospel. A few years, a brilliant man named Anthony Flew, um, who was an Oxford professor and everything, just brilliant guy, and one of the top atheists in all of history, one of the smartest atheists ever, the kind of the father of modern atheism to a great degree. After a lifetime of studying in his 80s, he suddenly, well, over a period of time, came to the conclusion that there had to be a God. And he wrote a book that's a brilliant book called There Is. Well, the, the cover of the book says There Is No God, and then it's crossed out No. And so it's There Is a God by Anthony Flew. He, he died um, earlier this year. And the sad thing is, though, he came to a logical conclusion that there had to be a God. As far as I know... He never came to put his faith in Jesus Christ, um, never made an open profession of that. But in his book called There Is a God, in the appendix, he put an explanation by uh, Bishop uh, Wright, uh, uh, Tom Wright, and, and Wright, who is one of the most brilliant Christians out there, they, he's usually known as N.T. Wright, um, wrote a whole case for why Christianity is, um, you know, is defensible and why it's worth following. And Anthony Flew wrote before the appendix, he said, I haven't as yet decided which religion, if any, are the correct ones, 
But he said, I think you'll agree after you read um, Bishop Wright's description of it, Christianity has to be the one to beat. He saw that Christianity was unique. And if you're going to pick a religion, he was saying, you better find one better than this. And we, most of us, have come to Christianity because we've looked at the options. We've looked at the alternatives and, and come to the conclusion that there are good reasons for believing in Christianity. Now, John takes this approach, but he takes a, a somewhat non-traditional or non-conventional approach to arguing for Christianity, really. Um, but he, he describes certain witnesses. Now, in the process, <coughs> this, these verses we're going to look at this morning are some of the more difficult verses, for a couple of reasons, to ascertain exactly what they are saying. Because there's one verse in here that the overwhelming predominance of scholars believes the verse doesn't even belong in the Bible. And the others have problems of interpreting exactly what the specifics are and what they represent. And I don't have time to unravel all of that, but I'll probably give you enough of it to bore you. But, but what I want you to make sure that you, that you do is in looking at some of the problems in these verses, don't miss the point. Don't miss the main thing that John is trying to establish. And I believe that whatever interpretation you take, some of the options that are in here, you'll agree that John drives his point home very clearly. And that is, there are some really good reasons, some really good witnesses that should cause us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's jump right into it, verse 6. He was just talking about believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and now he elaborates and says, This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So in this verse, he introduces three entities, if you will, water, blood, and the Spirit. And you'll see in verse 8, when we get to it in a moment, he brings these together and says, these are three witnesses that we have concerning Jesus Christ. Um, so the first question we have to ask is, what's with the water and blood? Because he doesn't define it, he doesn't say what it is, but he seems very impressed with its significance and its importance. Um, and there are a whole lot of different interpretations as to what he is talking about by water and blood. Um, in the early, fairly early church, a few hundred years into church history, the, uh, the idea was that he's talking about baptism and communion, the two predominant ordinances, or they would, the sacramental church would call them sacraments of the church. Um, to me, I understand it, and I think it has a place in the discussion, but you can't build from the context that he's talking about church ordinances. And the problem with church ordinances in themselves being witnesses is problematic, because all they do is say something, they don't prove anything that involves experience. And so other religions have other rituals, we have ours, this isn't something that would singularly 
set apart Christianity from everything else. And as a result, I'll hold that one out there, but it's okay. I, I, I don't think it completely nails it. And again, on a lot of this, I could be wrong, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> there are some people who take the position that water, I mean, it, it's kind of agreed that blood has to refer to Jesus' death, um, his atonement. Uh, most people would agree with that. Um, but there are those who would take water and say, this is referring to the word of God. The Bible talks about the washing of water of the word. And that preaches really well. Dr. McGee takes this position and, and then goes on for a long time about how important the word of God is. Far be it from me to uh, want to disagree with uh, J. Vernon McGee or to, to in any way take away from a passage that reminds us of how important, important the word of God is. Um, and that preaches really well. But again, I don't see necessarily that it completely fits with the context, especially because you'll see in verse 8 when he identifies these witnesses as God. And so to, it almost puts the word of God in the Trinity with Jesus and the Spirit and leaves the Father out of it if you're going to take that approach. So have a little bit of a problem with that. I could go, there are like 10 different suggestions. A couple things you have to consider in this at least are that the uniqueness of water as was seen in John's gospel in several cases. One of them was back in John chapter 3, a passage that you're really um, familiar with where John met with Nicodemus. And we have that whole you must be born again passage. And Jesus at that point, you can go back and read it on your own, but at that point Jesus said, you know, he goes, you need to be born again if you're going to get into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, as we said last week, I don't think my mom would go for that. And, and Jesus said, no, you have to be born of water and the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Not born of water only, but water and the spirit. Now, you go to that passage and you look at the commentaries and people want to argue about what that means. And they would say again, water baptism, um, you know, and the new birth, or they, they would, um, you know, make, make uh, you know, try to make some tie in there. But as you read on there, and after Jesus said, you have to be born of water and the spirit, his very next verse says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And since he said there's a second birth, what's the first birth? Obviously, Nicodemus knows it. It's when he came out of his mother's womb. So I think the best approach to take to John 3 is that being born of water and the Spirit refers to being born as a human and then being born again as a child of God. That isn't without its problems because it kind of sounds like you have to be born twice, which is true, but the first one ought to be kind of a given. I mean, oh, so I have to be born first? Uh, okay, I think I got that one down. But So it's a little awkward no matter what, but you know, um, the other passage that you want to consider is John was the only one who recorded the fact that when Jesus died, as after he died, the sword was plunged into his side and blood and water flowed out. And 
It's interesting that no one else ever mentioned that, the other gospel writers. Perhaps John was the closest one to the cross, no doubt he was, and saw what they didn't see. But when John tells about it in John 19, he goes on to treat it as an evidence of who Jesus was and of a fulfillment in some way of of that which had been prophesied about him. And he goes on and says, this is the proof, this is the evidence, this is how you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so there's something more to it. And I, I, I don't really have the time this morning to dive into John 19 a whole lot. Um, I will say I have some problems with a lot of the things that you've heard about it, that this was a natural result of the um, you know, pericardial fluid around the heart as that was pierced, that he, broke, that he had died of a broken heart, and all that preaches really well. I may use it again, but it probably, I mean, no one, it's never been known of anyone having their heart break open. And again, that wouldn't be water. That would be um, other bodily fluids. So um, to me, in the whole case, in, in that case, by the way, I'll give you just a little Mislarian hint. Um, I, when, when the sacrifices were given on the, on the Temple Mount, they had a drain at the Temple because there was a ton of blood that was flowing. At the same time, they had a ton of water that they would use to rinse it out, all the water from the lavers. And so if you were on the Mount of Olives looking at the Temple Mount, you would see blood and water mixed, flowing out of the side of the Temple Mount, flowing down into the Kidron Valley, down towards the, the Valley of Gehenna. And so to me, John 19 is is a referral to the fact that he was the ultimate sacrifice and that was confirmed by probably supernaturally water and blood coming out of him. He was dead before it happened and if you pierce a dead person, they don't bleed um, because their heart's stopping, there's nothing to pump it out. So that's a whole different thing, but let me come back to this. My best suggestion here is that like in John 3, that the water is referring to his birth. But not only that, probably through a veiled reference to baptism, also to the purity of the life of Jesus. But referring to that, to that human life that he lived. Had Jesus not been a human, he never could have died for us. And so to me, and this makes perfectly good sense when we come to verse 8, um, I think that the water is referring to the amazing nature of Jesus' birth, his virgin birth, the, the incarnation, this incredible truth that God became a man. I, I think it's also referring to the fact that he lived that life the way he lived that life, and then we will go on and talk about that a little more when we get to verse 8. But, and then clearly I think the blood is referring to his death, so here are the three witnesses that he introduces in verse 6, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as he is involved in this whole process. And then we'll talk about it in a moment because now we come to chapter to verse 7, and this is a verse that is problematic. Normally when people say, you know, um, 
I don't think that verse is in the original. I'm very, very skeptical. There are a lot of passages in Scripture that textual critics have said that's probably not in the original. The story of Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery in John 13, the last half of Mark chapter 16, or some passages that they say aren't in the best manuscripts, which when they say they aren't in the best manuscripts, they mean two manuscripts um, that are the oldest ones that we have, but they're still not all that old. And, and you start cutting things out of the Bible, I get kind of personal about it. But in this case, this verse, verse 7, is not in any old manuscripts at all. In fact, the um, in the Greek. First of all, all the other languages that the Bible was translated into back in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, it's not in any of those. It's not in any Greek manuscript that we have of the thousands of manuscripts that we have. It is in the Latin version of the Bible. And so the Catholics um, included in their Bible because they based their Bible on Latin, not on the original Greek. But... Other than that, there was one guy in the, around the 4th century A.D. who actually quoted this, and he was um, being tried as a heretic and found guilty, so he's not a great source. Um, there, there, this basic statement in verse 7, well, I'll read it first. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. <laughs> great verse. I mean, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's what you want. A clear verse that just says there's a trinity and they're all one. And I would want to believe this verse is legitimate as much as anyone would. Um, however, again, with it not being in any of the early manuscripts, plus the fact that we have a pretty good idea where it came from. In the early 1500s, in, uh, there was a man named Erasmus and if, I, if this gets boring to you, just go ahead and take a little nap, and I'll be back in a minute. But Erasmus was a humanist, probably not a Christian, probably an atheist, but a Bible scholar. And he translated the Bible and sold his translations to the Catholic Church and to others. Erasmus had come up with his first um, version of the Bible, and it didn't include this verse. He came up with a second and then finally a third version of the Bible, of the New Testament. And the Catholic Church came to him and said, we will not approve your edition of the Bible unless you put Mark, uh, 1 John 5, verse 7 into it because that's an important verse for us. And he, he at least had enough integrity, not a lot of integrity, but he had enough integrity that he said, I can't put a verse in that I can't find even one Greek manuscript that has that verse. And so the Catholic Church came up with a manuscript that had that verse. Fresh ink on the manuscript. <laughs> Literally, this was 1520, and the date of this manuscript is 1520. So clearly they just whipped one together and came up with it, and Erasmus says, I want to sell books, so fine, I'll put it in, and he did. And that is still the only Greek manuscript that's ever been found that has this verse in it. Oh, there are three other Greek manuscripts that have this in it, but it's not written in the text, it's written in the margin, and the writing that's in the margin 
came from the Middle Ages, from the 1500s. So, you know, they fixed a couple of them, but basically, um, verse 7 is completely true. I can, I can defend Trinitarian doctrine from a hundred different verses, but in this case, I think this is, is weak textually. The only real part of the Bible as we have it, as even the King James Version or the New King James Version, that I say, I don't know, man. I'd like to believe it's there, but I don't think it is. If it had been there in the original manuscripts, in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, when the church was debating the deity of Christ, when it was debating the nature of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, how, how the members of the Trinity are joined together, somebody would have mentioned this verse, and nobody mentioned it ever. Not Augustine, not any of the church fathers. So the evidence is overwhelming that this verse doesn't belong there. This seems like a detour, and it is, except we teach the Bible. And so since we're going through it, I just want to tell you, you can totally choose to believe that the verses should be there, and I don't object to that at all. Um, who knows? We don't have the original manuscripts, but all I'm saying is if you're going to argue with people about the Trinity, don't use 1 John 5, 7, because <laughs> most people will go, that's Erasmus, you know, they made it for him, you know, it was a custom version. So anyhow, so here's how the verse is in every every other greek manuscript other ever than other than the one that came from 1520 kinkos it, it, where it says for there are three that bear witness in heaven for there are three that bear witness is in the original what's what's added is the part that starts out in heaven and then going into verse 8 and there are three that bear witness on earth, all that is added. So the way that it really, it doesn't have anything about heaven and earth, that doesn't fit the argument or the discussion anyway. So if I'm correct, uh, me and everyone else who knows anything about it, um, then this should read, for there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Literally, these three are one. That word agree is just the word that means it is. It's the word amy, a being verb. So now he says, okay, here are my witnesses. Here are the reasons why you ought to believe in Jesus Christ over and above every other option that's out there. And the three witnesses are the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, another reason why the Trinity doesn't really fit in very well is the blood would have to be Jesus, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, but in what possible way could the Father be seen as the water? It's a real stretch. So I don't think he's, this passage teaches the Trinity, but not in a clear lined up, here's three, there's three, now does that mean there are six members of the Trinity? That's where um, some heretics get some of their ideas. But what he's saying is the Spirit, the water, the blood, all bear witness. So how is that? Well, we'll take the water first. Jesus Christ in his virgin birth is absolutely unique. The fact that God would become a man 
Nobody else has even made up anything like that. Oh, they might believe, they might teach that some human has God in him or has God aspects, but nobody's even going to try to fake a virgin birth. And, and it's just any of the major world religions, none of them start with that. But it goes way beyond that. Because if the water refers to not only how he came, but how he lived his life, the purity of Jesus Christ is just unbelievable. The teaching of Jesus Christ is incredibly powerful. There has been no teaching before or since that holds up in the same way that this simple carpenter from Nazareth, when he got up to crowds of people and he spoke and they were amazed. When he was a little kid, he spoke to religious leaders and they were amazed. And all of that is wrapped up in that life that he lived. And so to me, that's the first witness, is check out his life and compare it to every other life. Every other great religious leader who had a religion founded on them. You have to look at the origins of their life and who they were and how they lived, and you come to a conclusion, well, they were definitely human. Often some of the leaders of major religions were polygamous, had other people serving them, some of them involved in, in uh, physical involvement with children. Generally, they were all involved in building some sort of kingdom for themselves where they were the one that everybody else comes and gives them stuff and supports them. Jesus Christ is the only homeless religious leader ever. And yet, no sin. He was just like us. It, you know, in the same way that, and probably the water notion of birth refers to that when you give birth, water comes out. It cleans the, everything that's going on there. And so, as he came, and again, you don't have to divorce baptism from it. I think baptism, a huge part of the symbolism of baptism is referring back to this, but rather than this refer to baptism, I would say baptism refers to this, that pure, holy life of Jesus Christ, the way that he lived, the way that he taught, the way that he was born, absolutely unique among anyone else in the history of the world. And so, again, you have to explain how that happened. You have to explain why every other great religious leader, after they're dead, people come forward and admit all of these problems that they had. That's never happened with Jesus. And his teaching stands just incredibly unique. So I would say that Jesus' incarnation and the way that he lived his life stand as, a, as an impeccable witness as to the uniqueness of Christianity. But it didn't stop there because the blood also testifies. And again, communion will always remind us of the blood of Jesus Christ. John, over in the first chapter, remember he already said, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. A lot of religious leaders have died. Um, a lot of other people have died too. But 
to have a death that had um, saving efficacious effect um, is again unheard of. The ability to die for the world, dying as an example, no problem. Dying of old age, it happens. There are all kinds of ways to die, but Jesus in the prime of his life gave himself to die. He predicted his death. He was willing to do it. There were all sorts of supernatural signs that happened at the point of his death, including the veil of the temple being ripped in half, including blood and water coming out, including him being to endure the way that he did, suffering without opening his mouth, hanging there on the cross and asking for the forgiveness of the people who were killing him. Nobody dies like that. No one does. And his death is absolutely unique. So here are two witnesses, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Well, how does the Spirit come into play? Well, the Spirit was involved in the entire process. As the third witness, the Spirit's involved in his life. The Spirit was involved in his conception. The Spirit was involved in his growing and maturing. The Spirit was involved in comforting him when he was going through trials. The Spirit was involved in raising him from the dead, ultimately. The Spirit was there at his death. Everything about Jesus, his teachings were Spirit-filled. His miracles were supernatural works of the Spirit. They were not Jesus just doing miracles because he's God. They were Jesus doing miracles because he's filled with the Spirit. And yes, he never ceased being God, but according to Philippians 2, he gave up the use, independent use of his divine attributes and relied on the Spirit. It's why he went and spent so much time with God because he would be filled with the Spirit and able to do things that, you know, that wouldn't have been able to happen otherwise. And so as we look at his, his, you know, the, his conception, we look at his incarnation, we look at that perfect life that he lived, the teachings that he taught, the miracles that he did, the Spirit runs through all of that. And ultimately, as we see his death, the Holy Spirit was there with him all that time, strengthening him, allowing him to, to do all that he needed to do, and ultimately, the Spirit was involved in raising him from the dead as well. The most unique thing about Jesus' death was that it didn't last. <laughs> he came back from the dead without anybody praying over him. With a, none of his followers even had any faith at all that he would come back, even though he said he would. So he had to do it himself. By the power of the Spirit, he raised himself from the dead. So here are these witnesses. Jesus' life. Jesus' death, and the Holy Spirit's work in who he was, what he did, what he accomplished. Now, so again, there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. These three are the same. They're together. Now, and then he goes on and says in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. And again, that word testified is the same as the verb form, martyreo. 
So John backs up a little and he goes, you believe people, right? You go, well, not always. Oh, not always. But you can't do anything without believing somebody. At some point, when people tell you things, there are certain people that you believe. Now, sometimes that means there are going to be things that you believe that turn out to be wrong. But you can't live life without believing witnesses. If somebody tells you there's a huge sale down at the store, they could be wrong. And you've seen it before where people go, oh man, what a great sale. And you go down there and go, this is a sale? This is nothing here I would ever want. But you'll still trust people enough to check it out, to follow leads. So he's saying, if you'll trust people, the witness of men is something that you'll make a lot of life decisions based on. He goes, how about the witness of God? How about believing what God says? And boy, what a good question that is. Why wouldn't we believe God when we believe people? There are some people who quit believing in God because of something that a person says. And that's crazy. You're believing a person who they themselves say there's no God, they have no hope, and you're going to believe them and therefore reject God? So he says, believe in people, that's fine. How about believing God? One of our discussion questions this week involves talking about what causes you to believe people and what causes it to become a negative thing sometimes that you believe people. But John goes from there, and that makes a good discussion in and of itself, because there are a lot of reasons for believing or disbelieving different people. Namely, I mean, a lot of it is that they always have an, an agenda. But he goes, why don't you believe God? And then he says, witness of God is greater for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. See, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the spirit of God, that's not just God doing things in someone. John is claiming, no, that is God. When I tell you that your witness is Jesus in his in his life and in his death and resurrection, I'm telling you, that's God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. Now, will you believe him? And then he goes on to say why it matters. He says, um, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Or, or at first, um, he's testified of his Son, and then he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. See, all of your life, all of your existence hangs on life and death is determined by whether or not you believe that Jesus is who he says he was and did what he says he did. Now, you can stay neutral. You can decide that, that uh, you know, yeah, I just don't believe that. But if you do that, John says, okay, then you're saying God is lying because God's testifying that this is true. Do you really want to go out on a limb with your eternity and say, I think God is lying? Now, there are a whole lot of people who would say, well, I mean, that's not true. I, I don't necessarily believe that Jesus is the son of God. I don't think he's a liar. I just am not ready to 
really trust him? Well, John makes it really clear. This is the only question that you'll ever answer in your life that really matters. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And if you do that, then the testimony actually becomes your testimony. As he says, this testimony is in us when we do it. If you don't do that, you're saying that God is lying. These are not just nice religious platitudes. These aren't just some stories to help you have a better life. This is something that John believed so passionately that he said, if you don't believe the witness, you are writing God off completely. But if you do believe the witness, then you will discover that it's, that it's true. And so, as he says, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. What's that witness in ourself? The Holy Spirit comes into our life and the same Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus works in us. And he says, whoever doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the witness that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony, here it is, that God has given us eternal life. The best translation there, the words are reversed in the Greek, and, and you could translate this verse, God has given us life. I'm talking eternal life. It's emphasizing the life that he gives. And he says, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has literally the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So here he says, you have the witness of God. Jesus come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, did incredible miracles, taught things that were unbelievable but so true, um, working through even to his death and, and resurrection. If you want to argue with that, you're saying God's a liar. But he says, here's the trippy thing. If you believe in that, he actually comes in you. And then your witness becomes not just what you believe about him, but your, your witness becomes as you look in the mirror and see what he is doing in you. That your life has changed. And when your life changes, there's no other explanation for it when it happens right. It's just that I... Because see, again, every other religion would never have a death that is for nothing, for free. Someone who would say, look, you can receive my sacrifice and you don't have to do anything to get it. You just have to confess it. You just have to agree. And see, every other religion is trying to get you to do stuff. But the unlikely truth of Christianity is that, no, I'm not trying to manipulate you. However, when you begin to understand grace, it's really easy to tell. Because all of a sudden your life changes and you're, it's natural. You're not even trying and it changes. You're, you're resting in his love and his grace and it's changing your life. If that's happening to you, he says, check that out. Look at what God is doing in your life because that's the life. That's living life the way it's supposed to be. Now, that doesn't mean everything will always be easy. It doesn't mean there won't be pain. You're still here. 
You're still a human. You're still vulnerable, and you'll go through difficult times. But, I mean, like this week, I, I spent the week in the hospital, and I was in an awful lot of pain. And several people have said, because they've heard all these, you know, Pollyannish, super spiritual kind of things, and they're like, I can't wait to hear all the things that God spoke to you while you were laying on your back in the hospital. And I, I have to confess, and it's the same thing back when I had surgery a few years ago, laid there for a long time. When I'm hurting like that, God doesn't say anything to me. <laughs> Sorry, maybe he does to you. Maybe you have these incredible visions. And, you know, I might be skeptical of those kind of visions that come when you're on pain medication. <laughs> but I don't take pain medication, so God just doesn't say a thing. And the, the voice that I hear vibrating in my head is, ouch! <laughs> but that doesn't disturb me because during last week, there was never a time when I thought, maybe God's not real. There was never a time when I would think there's another option. I might go, you know, I don't know why God is having to allow this right now at Thanksgiving, but... Where else would I go? I mean, Christianity is, I've made the decision that I believe in Jesus, and I don't care what I'm going through, it doesn't change the testimony of God. It doesn't change who Jesus is. And here's the weird thing. By going through suffering and not feeling a thing from God, it's actually, you're stronger. Because that means that faith is required. If every time something bad happened to us, the ceiling opened up and, you know, God came floating down to us and spoke to us, that wouldn't be faith at all. That would be weakness. Strength is to be able to go, I hurt like anything, but I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. I trust him. And so when the times are darkest are the greatest opportunity to show your faith, but not necessarily the greatest opportunity for you to feel warm and fuzzy, that will come later. That, will, that always comes at times. But what John is saying is when you look at the life that you have, you should be able to look at it and go, it's amazing what God has done. It's amazing where I would be right now without him and where I am now. And he goes, you tell me how to explain that. That is a witness. That is amazing. And that too stands alongside the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit, because the Spirit's living in you too. And he's doing a work in you as well. And look at that and acknowledge that and realize that's something else that a religion can't imitate. All that religions can do is either move you into some kind of a frenzy or a swoon, whereby for a short time you kind of feel spooky, maybe with a little, you know, chemical help. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is great. But what other faith can change your life the way Christianity does? Now you go, well, I know a lot of people, a lot of religions that actually change for the better. Yeah, but without trying for free, when nobody told them they had to do it, it just happened. 
That's the Spirit of God. Ooh, we're really late. I'm sorry. I was going to go short today, so I'd give my leg, get my leg prop back up, but you know, that's the way it works. He who has the Son has the life. That's your testimony. And then he finally says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. People always want to discuss eternal security, once saved, always saved. And they love this verse because this verse makes some important points. I've written to you so that you will know presently that you have presently life that will last forever. So John is stating here pretty clearly, you can know right now that you're saved and that you'll always be saved, because if you're not going to always be saved, it's not eternal. And so this is a great verse to support that. But it's not a simple equation, because almost everyone who quotes this verse leaves off the last part. Because he says, I'm writing to those of you who believe so that you'll know that you have eternal life. And then he says, and that you would keep on believing. So, you know, keep on believing in uh, Jesus as the Son of God. So why say that? Well, <laughs> I don't know. But it goes along with John sharing Jesus' teachings when Jesus talked about, abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, no problem. If you, if you don't abide in me, you'll be cut off, you won't be fruitful, you'll be cast out into the fire. So to me, this verse gives great assurance. I don't know if somebody who has every appearance of being a child of God and believing in him can someday change their mind. I know some people who seem to have done that. I don't know why, but I believe that I can read what his word says and I can know that I have eternal life. But you get this by reading this, but also, as you read this, it should cause you to continue to believe. So I'm not taking any chances. I'm going to keep on focusing on who Jesus is, on what he has done in my life, on submitting to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to work in my life, because I know that's safe. If I do that, I'm secure. People who want security are usually people who want to live life like hell and know that they can still go to heaven. I'm not going to tell you that doing good things is going to get you to heaven, but I'm going to tell you that the life is when you focus on who he is, what he has done, and allow him to make your life a witness as well of the power of the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And if you do that and you keep doing that, you're secure. You don't have anything to worry about. Um, I'd love to go into it more, but it's almost time for third service, so let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for its truth and for your grace and your love and your forgiveness and your uniqueness. Help us to walk like we've seen the witness, like we've seen the evidence and the evidence has transformed our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. If, you, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you can get in on this today. There'll be people down in the front who love to pray with people, so... If you need to get into a relationship with